0: You're listening to DNA ID, brought to you by Abject Entertainment.
1: Be sure to check out some of the other great true crime podcasts from this network, including The Murder in My Family, Missing Persons, Scene of the Crime, Zodiac Speaking, Beyond Bizarre True Crime, Citizen Detective, and Campus Killings. All of these podcasts are available for you to binge on right now, wherever you listen to podcasts. Subscribe where you're listening to this podcast so you don't miss an episode. On Wednesday, June twentieth, 1984, around 3.30 p.m., two fishermen were angling on the Spokane River's south bank near the T.J. Meenock Bridge when they saw something floating about 20 feet from the shoreline. It appeared to be a human body. After receiving a call from the fishermen, the fire department arrived and a boat crew fished the body out. It was a nude woman. She was missing her head, hands, and feet. They were nowhere to be found. There was no identification on the body, and very few distinguishing characteristics. The only thing of note was a piece of tape that was partially wrapped around one of her arms. Dr. Don Ray, a forensic pathologist from the King County Medical Examiner's Office, was lined up to do the autopsy on Jane Doe. He was tasked not only with trying to figure out how this victim died, but who she was, Any scars, old medical procedures, broken bones, previous surgeries, and so on, could be used to compare to missing persons reports in the area. At the autopsy, Dr. Ray noticed stab wounds at the base of the Jane Doe's neck and deduced that she had possibly died from stabbing or her throat being cut. The doctor carefully examined the wounds where Jane Doe's severed limbs had been. He observed that her hands had been dismembered at the midpoint of each wrist, and her legs were cut off at mid-calf level. The missing limbs and her head had been severed by something sharp, such as an axe or hatchet or possibly a knife. Whatever it was, had torn the surrounding tissue and left the bones at the dismemberment points splintered and broken at angles. Someone did not want Jane Doe to be identified. So, of course, the pathologist gathered all the clues he could in an attempt to identify her. The victim was thought to be between 20 and 35 years old. She was blonde based on her body hair and probably about 5 foot 7 inches tall. She had borne a child sometime in the past two years. She had a scar on each of her knees. She had a three and a half inch diagonal scar on her left bicep and two moles on her neck. The Jane Doe bore signs of having been sexually assaulted, Bruising in her vaginal area and a tear in her rectum were evidence of genital trauma. Genital swabs were taken and placed into evidence. From what I've been told, these swabs have failed to yield any usable evidence thus far, but they remain in evidence in hopes that future technology will permit the extraction of forensic evidence. As for an estimation as to when exactly Jane Doe had died, the medical examiner really could not make one with any specificity. Because the water temperature in the river was only 45 degrees, decomposition would have been significantly slowed. The unidentified woman could have been in the water for days or weeks. About a month after the Jane Doe was fished out of the river, on July 18, 1984, a dog trotted home to its owner with a human hand in its mouth. This was in the Rimrock area, near the bridge where the Jane Doe was found. It was sort of assumed that the hand belonged to Jane Doe, a woman was found in the river there without hands, and a hand was found. It's a logical leap. Detective Lieutenant Jean McGugan told the Spokane Chronicle that the dog had chewed the hand, so it was not possible to tell whether the hand matched up to the wounds on the Jane Doe. The FBI was able to obtain fingerprints from the hand, and Washington authorities compared the prints to 10,000 prints on file in Spokane County to no avail. Then, Somewhat disappointingly, the FBI lost the hand. The Doe Network reported that mitochondrial DNA tests later performed on the hand before it was misplaced proved that it did not belong to Jane Doe, but Sergeant Zach Stormont of the Spokane Police Department's Major Crimes Unit, who led the investigation into the identity of Jane Doe, could not verify this information for me. It's unknown. Fourteen years passed after the hand was found. Then, on the evening of April 19th, 1998, a woman was walking her dog near a vacant lot slash dumping ground at 7th and Sherman in Spokane's lower South Hill neighborhood. The dog found what appeared to be a human skull partially buried and obscured under a pile of trash in the northwest corner of the lot. Two vertebrae were still attached, and evidence of sharp force trauma to the head was evident on the skull. The skull was found about four miles from where the body had been found in the Spokane River. Whether it was the missing head of Jane Doe was anyone's guess, although the vertebrae perfectly lined up with the angle and location of the decapitation wound on the body, and the tool marks were similar as well. Spokane County Medical Examiner George Lindholm said, quote, It's like two pieces of a puzzle that come together perfectly, end quote. There were also no other missing heads that investigators were aware of. So, detectives at the time came to believe that the skull and Jane Doe were one and the same person. The lot where the skull was found had housed a church that was raised in 1989, years after the body belonging to the skull was found. The skull was sitting in an area of the lot that had been covered by brush until it was cleared out in the fall of 1997. After the skull turned up, the lot was excavated in a vain attempt to locate the other hand and feet, but nothing was found. Sergeant Stormont told me that the vacant lot had been used, with permission by the owner, as a depository for fill that was brought in from other areas to be used in construction projects in downtown Spokane. Much effort was made to pinpoint the location where the loads of dirt hauled in by dump trucks had originated, but years had passed and it was futile. Sergeant Stormont believes that the skull was not discarded or buried in the vacant lot, but was brought in from somewhere else where it had probably been buried. Once she had her skull back, the Jane Doe was given the honorary name, Millie, by the daughter of one of the detectives working the case, Detective Don Geezy. The name stuck and she became known as Millie Doe. In 2000, images of Millie's face were released, using her skull as the basis for a forensic sketch by A.C. Parks. Police had decided that the woman was almost certainly not from Spokane since no one had reported her missing there and no one called in when she was found. They hoped that the images would be widely circulated and trigger recognition for someone who recalled Millie.
0: In January of 2001,
1: SPD Detective Geezy arranged for the body of Millie Doe to be exhumed so that DNA testing could be done to confirm conclusively that the skull and the body were from the same person. Millie's body had been buried in Fairmount Memorial Park Cemetery in Spokane. At the exhumation, samples were taken from her torso, and mitochondrial DNA testing was able to confirm that the skull and the body came from the same maternal line. The assumption was then made that it was the same person. A forensic dentist examined Millie's skull and posited that she had had recent dental work done. Now police hoped they could use Millie's dental work in an effort to identify her. After the exhumation and confirmed match, Millie's DNA was entered into the CODIS Unidentified Human Remains Database, but no hit was obtained. In 2002, a clay facial reconstruction of Millie was created from her skull, and additional forensic drawings of what she might have looked like were released. The tape was sent to the Washington State Patrol Crime Lab in 2006. Remember, this was the tape wrapped around Millie's arm. However, Sergeant Stormant told me that the tape was almost completely deteriorated by the time it was forensically examined, and testing on it in 2006 and in later years was unable to provide any DNA or leads. It's not even certain what type of tape it was and whether it was used on Millie or possibly was totally unrelated to her case and just somehow adhered to her body while she was in the river. Millie was in Doe Network, CODIS, and NCIC by 2007. That year, her information was uploaded to NamUs as UP489. In 2007, a drawing of Millie's image was created by forensic artist Carrie Stewart Parks who had used Millie's actual skull as the basis of her drawing, earlier. She picked up a hairstyle from a contemporary women's magazine and had to guess at the shape of the nose and eye color. Sergeant Zach Stormont picked up Millie's case in 2020. He familiarized himself with it, conducted additional testing, and finally, in 2021, made the decision to engage Othram Labs in a final attempt to identify Millie using forensic genealogy. His agency provided the lab with a biological sample from Millie's remains, but the sample was degraded and contaminated. Nonetheless, Othram was able to develop a SNP profile from the sample. Othram conducted the forensic genealogy research and located a set of siblings that they estimated were in the range of grandparents of Millie, but eventually one of whom turned out to be her father. Othram recommended reference testing of a suspected relative of Millie, who resided in Spokane that they found by building out her family tree. This relative agreed to provide a DNA sample, and the results were uploaded to the database and showed that he was likely a half-sibling of Millie. This reference sample allowed the Othram genealogist to learn some more about the family, and Spokane detectives were able to locate a divorce record, which listed two daughters of the divorced couple, either one of whom could be Millie based on her position in the family tree. Both daughters were believed to be deceased. This was concerning to Sergeant Stormont because the mitochondrial testing that was done on Millie back in 2001 could have identified either sister. In other words, the skull and body could actually be from two different sisters based on those test results. However, Deputy Medical Legal Death Investigator Nicole Hamada with the Spokane County Medical Examiner's Office was able to track down one of these sisters, the younger one, who was alive and living in the Midwest. Detectives with the Oklahoma City Police Department cold case unit made contact with the woman named Deborah Waymeyer. She told Ms. Hamada that she had a sister named Ruth, whom she had not seen in decades. She agreed to provide a reference sample, and when she did, it showed that she was a full biological sibling of Millie Doe. On February seventeenth, Millie was officially identified as Ruth Bell Waymire. Ruth was born on April 16, 1960, to parents William Waymire, who went by the nickname Red, and Helen. Ruth and Deborah were young when their parents split. She and her mom and Deborah moved in with friends. Ruth went to an elementary school that no longer exists and then on to Rogers High School. But soon she moved on and lost contact with younger sister Deborah. She was never considered missing. She was just someone who bounced around from place to place. Her mother, Helen, died after an illness in 1981, and her father, Red, went on to have additional children with subsequent wives. He had four wives in total, and it was a child of one of these other marriages, a half-sibling of Ruth's, whose reference sample helped lead to her identity. Ruth was married to a John A. sometime around September 1979. Her residence at the time was listed as Spokane. There may or may not have been a pregnancy associated with this marriage. It's unknown. The marriage between the two young people lasted only a matter of months. John told Sergeant Stormont that Ruth left with another man. His sister also spoke with the investigators about her former sister-in-law and backed up the story that Ruth abandoned the marriage and ran off with someone else. John A. has fully cooperated with the investigation. He is not considered a suspect in Ruth's death. Ruth's family recalls her spending time with another man, someone neither Helen nor Deborah liked. Deborah referred to him as a druggie with long, dark hair, and they both warned Ruth to stay away from him, but she didn't listen. In about June 1981, Ruth remarried in Wenatchee. The marriage certificate reflects that her new husband's name was David Lee William Vaughn. This appears to be a man whose real name is Trampas D.L. Vaughn, born in Keokuk, Iowa, in 1945. According to Sergeant Stormont, this Trampus Vaughn had done time in Iowa for a first-degree assault charge. I could only find a reference in the Muscatine Journal to him being fined $20 for public intoxication in December 1973. This Trampus-slash-David Lee had been divorced in 1979 in Wenatchee. Now, it's important to point out that we do not know whether Trampus was the druggie Ruth ran off with. Deborah did not recognize Trampas when shown a photo of him all these years later. No record of a divorce between Trampas and Ruth has been located, and there is no evidence of Ruth living anywhere other than Washington State. After this marriage record, there are no public records reflecting her being a living person. She is believed to have died sometime in June 1984, when she was 24 years old. At Ruth's autopsy, the M.E. determined that she had likely borne a child within one or two years of her death. Investigators have not been able to locate a child or children of Ruth's, although they are still working on it. Trampas D. L. Vaughn died in Sutter County, California in 2017. Police have not ruled him out as a suspect, and no other suspects have been identified. However, it's worth noting something that Detective Don Geezy told the Spokesman Review in 2007. Quote, Whoever killed Millie went to such extremes to make sure we couldn't identify her that if we ever figure out who she is, we're fairly certain we can figure out who killed her. The killer was likely closely affiliated to her, and whoever knows her knows the killer too. End quote. I'm realizing now that this is the second Doe case in a row that I've covered in which a female murder victim was dismembered and discarded in a river. That was not deliberate, and I understand from the investigators that dismemberment cases are rare. But it seems safe to say that the likely purpose of dismemberment, such as in the Evelyn Cologne and Ruth Waymeyer cases, is to obscure their identity—something that only someone who was involved in their lives would be concerned with. Police are still working to solve Ruth's case. Here is a statement from the investigators: Spokane Police and investigators with the Medical Examiner's Office are hopeful that those who knew Ruth, her husbands, and/or perhaps a child or children born to Ruth, will contact police and help bring closure to the tragic death of a young woman dubbed Millie until now. Rest in peace, Ruth Bell. Sergeant Storman asks that if anyone from the Wenatchee or Spokane areas has any information whatsoever, they please contact him at 509-242-TIPS. That's 509-242-8477. Police are also hoping to raise funds to arrange for Ruth's skull to be buried with her body and to provide a proper headstone marking her grave. Thank you so much to Sergeant Jack Stormont of the Spokane Police Department for talking with me about this case. Thanks for listening to this episode of DNA ID. If you'd like to listen to the show ad free and help support the show in the process, please head over to Patreon.com/DNAID. And if you're interested in some fun DNA ID merch, visit the store at customizedgirl.com slash s slash DNA ID podcast. To contact the show, please email us at podcast at gmail.com. Follow us on social media at DNA ID podcast on Instagram, at DNA ID podcast on Twitter, or on Facebook at facebook.com slash DNA ID podcast. Finally, if you want to visit our website, go to dnaidpodcast.com. You'll be able to get all the episodes of the show, leave comments on episodes that I can respond to, and you can even leave voicemails. You'll get all the latest news about the show and important updates. Find links to our social media, merch, and a lot more. It's really your one-stop shop for everything DNA ID. DNA ID is written, researched, and hosted by me, Jessica Betancourt. It's produced by me and Mike Morford of Abjack Entertainment. Music by Connor Betancourt. Check out our other collaborative podcasts, Scene of the Crime, Missing Persons, and Beyond Bizarre True Crime.